From the EBKV studios in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you're listening to Brotherly Pod, the official podcast of BrotherlyPuck.com. Welcome, everybody, to Brotherly Pod. It is July 14th today. It is 7,000 degrees in the studio. Uh, it is Brotherly Pod. No coast-to-coast today. Not really enough news nationally to uh, to warrant a get-together. But my uh, coast-to-coast co-host, Anthony DeMarco, did want to do kind of an episode on Paul Holmgren. Uh, he stepped down from the Flyers. We'll get into that in a minute. But, uh, Anthony, how are you doing today? Not too bad, Dan. How are you doing? I am doing good. Uh, a little bit of news before we get into the Paul Holmgren stuff. Some signings from around the league. Ryan Dezingle ended up signing with the Carolina Hurricanes, if I could page with load. Uh, two years at 3.37. Michael Furland signed with the Vancouver Canucks for four years at 3.5. And Jordan Bennington, the Stanley Cup winning goaltender of the St. Louis Blues, signed a two-year deal at 4.4, and the last one being Scott Lawton, re-signed with the Flyers for two years at 2.3 million. Uh, Anthony, let's just run through your general thoughts of these signings. Well, I think this is a very good steal there for the Hurricanes. A lot of people thought that he was going to get, you know, 5 million a year for five to six years. But again, like you have to understand that Dezingle maybe got, I don't know, overhyped a bit considering like where he was placed in terms of the trade deadline bait list. So I don't think he was getting what he was looking for. So a really good pickup there by the Carolina Hurricanes. They could add some depth to a relatively thin offensive roster. Furland, you know, it's a it's a good AAV. Uh, four years, it's a bit much, I would think, for a guy who only has like two years of a good track record. But, you know, leave it to the Vancouver Canucks to kind of overpay for a grinder type player. I tweeted it out earlier this week then, and, you know, between Roussel, Jay Beagle, and Michael Furland, I think they have $16.5 million timed up in AAV money. And... I think that kind of poses a problem to try to get Brock Besser locked in. They only have $5 million left in cap space. So while I don't mind the Furland contract in a nutshell, I think locking up a 27-year-old, you know, basically power forward to that kind of money with a full no-movement clause when your superstar uh, forward is in line for a big-time contract extension – I thought it was kind of malpractice by Jim Benning, but like I said, the Canucks kind of have a track record for overpaying on the open market. We all remember Louis Erickson. And Jordan Bennington, that was a really good contract for the St. Louis Blues. I said when we spoke about this on Coast to Coast a few weeks back that I would have been hesitant to go long-term with Bennington because although he won the Stanley Cup with them and he performed excellent when he came up, it still was only a five-month sample size for a 25-year-old rookie. So you couldn't really, you know, bet on that long term. And I compared him to kind of a Matt Murray. Matt Murray got a three-year contract worth, I believe it was $3.75 million after he won the first Stanley Cup. So Bennington getting a two-year deal at around four, what was it then, 4.8? 4.4. 4. 
4.4. So I, I think like two year deal with a slightly higher AAV compared to Matt Murray. So I'm sure that that was the comparable contract they used. So excellent signing by Doug Armstrong, in my opinion, the best general manager in the league. And Scott Lawton, uh, it was kind of uh, exactly what I expected. Uh, AAV of 2.3 for two years. I think the Danton Heinen signing with Boston kind of set the tone. He got two years at 2.8 AAV. I think after that signing, it kind of like leveled the playing field for the Flyers and Lawton. You know, I see a lot of fans like crying about how he should have gotten 1.7 or 1.8, but I think you're kind of splitting hairs here. Yeah, ideally he's a um, a fourth-line guy, but Lawton can move up and down the lineup in an injury situation. I think as a centerman he's a fourth-line guy, but if he's a winger, I think he's very much a third-line player. So I like that contract that Lawton got. And I think that this year he showed that he can put out some offensive numbers if placed in the right situation. Every time I go on the Vancouver Canucks cap-friendly page, my jaw hits the table at what the hell they're doing up there. Louis Erickson at three, has three years left at $6 million. JT Miller has four years left at 5.2. Brandon Sutter has two years left at 4.3. Tanner Pearson has two left at 3.7. Farland is 3.5. Sven Barchi is two years at 3.3. Anton Roussel is three years at three. Jay Beagle is three years at three. Alex Edler is two years at six. Tyler Myers is five years at six. Chris Tanev is one year at 4.4. What are they doing? Oh, my God. Yeah, the Canucks have been going in two directions at once. Like, they're kind of rebuilding, and I like I like a lot of their players. Like, I love Bo Horvat. Obviously, Brock Besser is trending to be a premier sniper in this league. And then I, they, their goaltenders... Like, they have a very high ceiling. Thatcher Demko projects to be a good, solid young goalie. They also have Di Pietro. Markstrom's not too bad. I think he's just kind of been, you know, um, a product of a poor team for a number of years. But then you go out and you hand guys these contracts. Like, you know, I, I like role depth players as much as the next guy, like Roussel and Beagle and even, like, a Tyler Myers on the defensive side. But you can't invest, like north of $3 million into these types of players. And like I mentioned earlier in the show, it, it's tough to hand out these contracts. And then you still haven't locked in Brock Besser, who for all intents and purposes is the future of this team with Pedersen moving forward, who projects to be a superstar, but they only have $5 million in cap space. So it, it's tough to know what Benning is doing. I know their owner, Francesco Aquilini, really wants them to make the playoffs. So I guess when you have pressure from ownership like that, your hands are kind of tied, but at the same time, like, man, oh, man, it's tough to do what they're doing. And, you know, at the draft, they traded a first-round pick for J.T. Miller. So, like I said, they're kind of going in two directions at once, and it's kind of posing problems for the way that they're building this thing. Jeez, just baffled looking at this stuff. But, uh, yeah, going back to Scott Lawton, he made uh, – when I projected him signing when we did a show, I believe it was Angry Negative show back in whatever it was towards the end of the year, <clears throat> I had Lawton at Michael Raffles' old contract of three years at 2.3 and change. And uh, it was pretty close. He had signed two years at 2.3 and change. And, yes, of course, Flyers Twitter went, oh, I, I wanted him at 1.7, which is funny because a couple weeks ago I was like, hey, Kevin Hayes is getting paid – too much at 7.1 and they go well would you be happier if it was six and a half so like <laughs> clearly there's something wrong here these fucking idiots but yeah it is uh, you know overall i'm a big fan of the scott lawn contract it's pretty much exactly what i expected they still have 
to sign Konechny and Provorov. Uh, neither one we've really heard a whole lot of updates on. Apparently, they just started talking with Konechny not too long ago, but they have $13.4 million in cap space to make that happen. Should not be a problem uh, at this point, anyway. So, overall, they managed to somehow make it out of this summer without any cap space, uh, cap issues, anyway. So, the other big news coming out of the Philadelphia Flyers organization is... Paul Holmgren has stepped down as president. He becomes an advisor to Dave Scott, who is the owner, essentially, of the Flyers at this point. And Chuck Fletcher moved up to president and general manager, which is a a bold move, to say the least. So Holmgren is out. Dave Scott and Fletcher are the men making the decisions for the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, Anthony, what are your basic thoughts on this? Well, I I was somewhat surprised about it i know that there were rumors about it back in march but the flyers denied it obviously they would um i'm not so much surprised that homer stepped down you know it was well documented he's been a member of the flyers whether it be player coach assistant gm gm or president for like 40 years now so it's normal that he's probably, you know, had it. He's done his thing. I've liked Holmgren more than the average fan, but we'll get into that a bit later. So I'm not so much that he stepped down, but more so that he did it given the current state of the Flyers. Like, they're pretty much handing the entire hockey ops department to Chuck Fletcher, which he's only been with the franchise for, what, seven months now? Something like that. Exactly. So... I think that they were kind of paving the way for Ron Hextall to take this over. I thoroughly believe that because, you know, the first three, four years Hextall was around, well, actually more than two, first two or three, you know, I would have given him an A-plus grade. But I think after that Pittsburgh Penguins series, I think that people just started to get fed up with it because it was always just status quo. So I think they had this in the works for a while Holmgren mentioned that he had first spoken to Scott about it in last year of June, which Hextall was obviously still in power. So I think they were paving the way for Hextall to take over completely. You know, he was the executive vice president uh, in addition to being the general manager. So uh, I guess they, they're giving the reins to Fletcher now. And I, I guess they have a lot of faith in Fletcher, but I still do find it a bit peculiar that they're putting this much power in Fletcher's hands after having just, what, seven months under his belt with the team. Yeah, there were rumors that, you know, rumors came out a couple months ago that it was going to happen, and then when it was announced, Holmgren said that he's been thinking about it since last June. Uh, So, you know, this clearly was something that happened. You know, for reference, Holmgren was drafted by the Flyers 108th overall in 1975 and has been with the organization pretty much Every year, with the exception of, uh, I believe it's seven, eight years total, spent a couple years in Hartford as a coach, and I believe he played for the Minnesota North Stars for two years before retiring. So, uh, you know, he's been with the organization forever, and, uh, you know, I think he's 64, 65 now, so getting up there in age as well, so obviously time for him to step down, but uh, I'm a big fan of Paul Holmgren for the most part what he did. I I think we're going to go through kind of year by year here in a couple minutes and talk about it. But overall, you know, he was able to salvage the team in the late 2000s. You know, when Bobby Clark built a team that just wasn't competitive anymore. Uh, You know, he had guys like Mike Rathje under contract still. and, And, you know, these guys that 
were good years prior, not there. You know, Eric Desjardins, my, one of my favorite flyers of all time, but at the, you know, in 2006, he just wasn't able to hang anymore. And Mike Rathje was slow. And, you know, the rest of the defense wasn't quite there anymore. And the goaltending was fine, but not great. And he still had guys like Donald Brashear under contract. You know, he just wasn't building the team great. And when Bobby, uh, Bobby Clark stepped down, he was essentially fired. And uh, Holmgren took over in early 2006, like it would have been early in the season of 2006-2007. You know, he really was able to turn that team around pretty quick. So I was a big fan of Paul Holmgren for the most part. Uh, You know, he's second in Flyers history in penalty minutes with 1,600 and only behind uh, Rick Tockett. Uh, He's been an assistant coach with the Flyers in uh, 87, took over for a year. Uh, he was an assistant coach under Mike Keenan that took over a year, uh, coached for three years. He missed the playoffs, got fired in the late nine or late eighties, early nineties. Got taken over, went to Hartford, coached a little while, came back as an assistant general manager eighty nine, filled various scouting roles before that for the Flyers. Then was uh, took over for Bobby Clark in two thousand six. So he clearly had a history with the team, and uh, you know, coming in, I was I was a big fan of the move at the time. I think it was what you know, they needed to do, and he was able to make changes for the most part, really until the last two or three years that he was here. Yeah, and, you know, people remember his last two off-seasons, and you know what? They were bad, and by the end, I was the first one to say it, he had to go. I felt ever since they they went to the cup final and lost, like, he couldn't really accept it, you know? Like, he kept making these big moves, big signings, but like you mentioned, that when he took over in 06... 07 like that was probably the first year where I really started following it and that was the worst regular season in franchise history they finished with what 51 points something like that uh, they finished 22 48 and 12 okay so, that's, so uh, 56 points okay so awful <laughs> for all yes <laughs> yeah. and I remember when he first came in and you know, obviously John Stevens became the coach, but just off the top of my head, I can remember some trades he made. He traded Alexi Zitnik for Braden Coburn, which was an amazing contract, uh, amazing trade, because Coburn was uh, one of the cornerstones of the blue line for, what, six seasons? Something like that. Then he traded Peter Forsberg for Upshaw, Ryan Parent, a first and a third. Again, another brilliant trade. He got Martin Biron, who, okay, he wasn't the best, but he provided decent goaltending, especially after what the Flyers were accustomed to. So, and then that offseason, you know, he he traded Jeff Sanderson, Yoni Pitkinen, and a third-round pick for Lupul and Jason Smith. Lupul was fantastic in his two seasons with the Flyers, and Smith was the captain for a year. Then he traded the first-round pick of Nashville back to Nashville for the rights for Tiemann and Hartnell, and we know what those two players meant to the team. And he was able to bring in Danny Briere, who was the most highly sought-after free agent. So what I like the most about Holmgren, especially in that first calendar year, is that it was easy for teams or players, I may add, to look at that Flyers like organization and be like, you know what, I don't want to go there. They're coming off of the worst yeah, worst season in franchise history. You know, Bob Clark for the last two seasons or so was kind of grasping at straws. Like, why would I want to go there? And we see that now this year where, like, the Flyers aren't a preferred destination. They had to overpay big time to get Kevin Hayes locked in. They had to trade for defensemen because guys like Truba apparently didn't want to come here. But Holmgren was able to take a team that finished last 
and make them appealing for free agent destination for a guy like Danny Briere because he went out and added guys like Tiedemann and Hartnell and Lupel and Smith. And the very next year, they made to the conference finals, which I think to date is the biggest turnaround season to season of any NHL team. So in his first year, he made the fly, like not to you know use a cliche, but he turned them from a zero to a hero. And that's what I liked about Holmgren the most, that he wanted to win so badly. The You and I were arguing with some numbskull on Twitter earlier, and tying you know, the summer of 07 back into today, you know, he goes, well, what would you have done different? Uh, you know, you got to make the team competitive, make a legitimate move. Niskanen and Braun and Hayes, they fill roles, but you want me to believe in the team. You want me to be interested in what they're doing. Make changes. Make legitimate changes. Coburn, Baron, Tiemann, and Hartnell, JVR. They drafted JVR that year. Breer, Smith, and Lupel. That's a change. They sucked, and they did something about it. You know, not the. It's not moral victories, and that's what I liked so much about Holmgren is that he didn't settle for mediocrity. He didn't settle for losing. You know, he was that Flyers mindset. And, you know, Clark was the same way very much, where, you know, he was more off the rails before the salary cap. But, you know, they didn't settle. And and it was legitimate moves that made the team better. And I will always be a fan of that approach, maybe because I've been in that, you know, I've been a Flyers fan my whole life. And I grew up with Bobby Clark making batshit crazy trades. And then Holmgren came in and made a bunch of smart moves. But, you know, that's what this current team needed. I, I think they needed bigger pieces in what they did. I think they're going to be better, but they could have done more to impress the fan base. Well, yeah, that's it. And that that's what Holmgren did. Like, I remember in the 09-10 season, that offseason was like, because in the 08 offseason, he didn't really do too much, but it was in 09, which was his third offseason, where he traded for Chris Pronger. He brought Ray Emery back from... Uh, Russia, which turned out to be brilliant. You remember how good he was before he got hurt? Yeah. And then he brought in Ian LaPerriere, and he, he, like he just made a few moves, but bold moves. And then I remember in the in the preseason they weren't playing well, and obviously it spilled into the regular season because they ended up firing John Stevens and bringing Peter Laviolette. But I remember there's that story where he went into the dressing room in the preseason and was basically like, "What the fuck is wrong?" Like, what's the problem? Because in the preseason, he saw that they weren't good, and he was just like, what's the issue? Like, I'll improve the team. He was never, you know, like, he was never opposed to that. He was never scared of making big moves. But that's what I liked about him. Like, preseason flyers, and they weren't playing well, and he literally wanted to know what the problem was. And it's like people are so unappreciative of that approach. Like, okay, did he make bad moves? Yes, he did. But he was always trying to win, you know? And for all intents and purposes, like, he only really started to make bad moves after that. Like, after, like, uh, the cup final appearance. But, like, he made massive moves, like, to get him Chris Pronger here. But these were moves that were needed. And, man, I'm so, I miss those days. But, like, you could just appreciate, like, he didn't have any emotional ties to players. Like, okay, like, look at John Stevens, who was excuse me, the first coach that he brought in, correct? And we always know that GMs are reluctant to part with their first coaches, like we saw with Dave Haxel and Ron Hextall. But, you know, it wasn't working, and he got rid of him, and he brought in a coach who had a pedigree. 
And that's what I like with him. That 09-10 season, when Ship was kind of falling off the rails there, he didn't wait. He didn't just settle and be like, oh, they'll turn around eventually. No, he made moves. He went down to the to the locker room and asked what the problem was. He replaced the coach, and that's what I liked about Holmgren. He didn't settle for mediocrity and bullshit. The move, biggest move made in 2008 was when Darren Hatcher went down. He brought in Matt Carl from Tampa, which ended up being a pretty big move once Pronger got here, because those two were a pretty decent pair. The summer of a nine, they replaced Baron and Nitty Mackey with Ray Emery and Brian Boucher. They acquired Chris Pronger. We all know what that trade was about. They fired John Stevens early in the year, replaced him with Peter Laviolette. They claimed Michael Layton off waivers in December. So uh, that was pretty good. Summer of 10, which would have been after their cup run. They had some issues there. They obviously, Nikita Zherdev put him over the cap. They sent Gagne uh, to Tampa for Andre Mazaros, uh, which was actually two separate trades, but it was essentially, that was the deal there. Summer of 2011 were the, obviously, Richard Carter trades. They signed Briz, Yager, Talbot, and the Pronger injury forced him to go uh, off there summer of 2012. This was the big one, obviously, the JVR for Shen. This is when things kind of got foggy for me because, you know, Shen for JVR, like, it's fine. You can at least make a case there. At the time, it was a bad trade, but, you know, Shen was a first-round pick. He did kind of have that thing that, that... the Flyers' defense was at the time. So we, at least, you know, it's a horrible trade in hindsight, but it worked. Then yeah. it kind of went big game hunting with Parise, Suter, and Weber, all of which failed. In the meantime, they lost Matt Carl and Yager, which, you know, did more damage than they were expecting. Yeah, and the thing with me is like, okay, and another really subtle move that he made in the summer, in the 2010 trade deadlines when he got Leno from Detroit for Tolleson and a late round draft pick but yeah it was that summer for me 2010 that I started losing faith in him because remember he he basically traded Simon Gagne for a bag of pox and I didn't like that because a lot of people and myself they I was clamoring for them to trade Carter because at least Carter they would have gotten something of value for him as opposed to Gagne who was just a cap thumb but again you can't really crap on the team all that much because they were I think they finished at the top of the Atlantic division at that time second in the conference obviously they got embarrassed by Boston that sweep but that's another thing that I liked is that 2011 you could would you admit Dan that they got embarrassed by Boston exactly but like and I compared that to the embarrassment of against the Penguins in 2018 and look at like look at the difference of Hextall and Holmgren Holmgren traded the two cornerstones of the franchise for Carter and Richards, which in hindsight were probably the two best trades he ever made. Yes. Like you brought in like Simmons and Shen and Tori and Vorchek. And then like, you know, he went out and got Max Talbot and Yager. And like, then the next year, if Pronger wouldn't have gotten like his, his career ended, maybe they would have been better. But that's the thing that I liked about him. It's just like, okay, you guys aren't playing to expectations. Out with you, you know? Like, he didn't settle for just hopes and dreams. Like, he just made moves. And, yes, when you got to, like, the 2012 offseason when he tried to offer Sheep Weber and he went big game hunting for Parise and Suter, and then, obviously, in 2013 when it became Strite and Le Cavalier, like, yeah, he kind of went off the rails. 
He lost touch with the salary cap era, especially coming out of the 2012 lockout. But his intent was always to win. He always wanted to win. He didn't want the team to suck. As opposed to the guy that most fans love, Ron Hextall, he was okay with sucking. Like, this year, in 2018-19, this very past season, they were going down the tubes fast, and he just did not care. And I always made a joke like, oh my god, like Dave Hextall's only going to go when Ron Hextall goes. But I always kind of thought that eventually he, like Hextall would see the light and move on, but he didn't. And he had to get canned for Hextall to go. And this is what people, I feel, take for granted. And everyone shits on Holmgren. It's just like the thing to do. But you don't miss the times when the guy in charge of the team actually wanted to win and wanted to put an entertaining product on the ice. Yeah, he made bad moves, but I'd rather a guy who took a shot and made some mistakes along the way than a guy who didn't do anything but made zero mistakes. I just, I think it all goes back to Ron Hextall brainwashing the fans of, you know, gotta be prospects and you can't trade a kid for a 35-year-old. People forget what it's like to have competitive hockey, what it's like to win, what it's like to be in an era where you made moves to get better. And I think, again, we can tie that to the modern, you know, the, the additions they made this season, you know, the, the Hayes and Niskanen and Braun. There are people that are grasping at every straw they can to justify the three of them doing something. But back then, they would have made moves that made the team competitive straight up. You know, and it's just, I just, I will never, ever understand the hate that Holmgren got. We're going to talk about the bad summers here coming up at 13-14, but, like, he tried. He tried to win hockey games. There was none of this, well, in 10 years from now, this team will be good. Once I'm done drafting, all the prospects are 30 years old. There was just, there was none of that with him. And it was it's the Hextall mentality, the Hextall brainwashing that unfortunately most of this fan base still seems to be stuck in today. Just it, it did its number in that Penguin series two years ago, and they got crushed by the Penguins. They were embarrassed in both their city and in Pittsburgh. You know that whole series, that whole season rather, was kind of rough, and, and the people were turning on Hextall. And after that playoffs, everybody should have been fired. That entire coaching staff should have been gutted and the roster should have been turned over but it wasn't they went right back into this past season with the same roster making the same mistakes and it didn't work and i just i don't I would, i'll never understand how people can back up ron hextall for other stuff that he didn't do for this team I, I just don't get it well and it's also like it's funny because and again i'll reiterate holmgren had to move aside because he didn't draft he didn't develop but like in saying that, like, okay, you talk about the brainwashing. Dan, is it not fair to say that people got brainwashed by Hextall that the only way to be good was to draft all the time? Yep. Okay. Holmgren drafted, like, hot garbage, pretty much. Like, besides JVR in 07, you know, Spiza was 08, and he was quickly traded and amounted to nothing. They didn't have a first-round pick in 09 and 10, and in 2011, they, uh, 2011 and 12, they drafted Katori and Lawton, which were good. But And then the final homegrown pick was Samuel Moray, who I'm sure you love. <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, for the most part, especially if you look from 2009 to 2012, and if people remember, they only got Katori because of the trade 
of sending Carter to Columbus, they didn't draft very good players. Like most of those guys amounted to nothing. I would say 80% of what Holmgren drafted amounted to nothing. But you know what? They were competitive every single year. They missed the playoffs once under Paul Holmgren. Once. And like they were winning playoff series all the time. Like two conference finals appearances, a cup final appearances, made the, the second round on two occasions. And people just like they act like, oh yeah, but he didn't draft well. Okay, well, we've drafted beyond perfect under Hextall and we haven't won a playoff round. We've won four playoff games. So what the hell good is drafting all these kids? You've gone on record and saying they could fill out two rosters worth of prospects, but what do we have to show for it? So, like, yes, I agree. You and I'm not crapping all over drafting and developing because I think it's very important to do that. But you look at a team, like, take two teams, Washington and Pittsburgh. Dan, would you say over the past decade those are the two most successful franchises in the Eastern Conference? More or less, yeah. Okay, more or less those two. When's the last time either one of those guys had, like, this super sexy-looking prospect coming up? Uh, 2006 with Alex Ovechkin? Exactly. <laughs> like, they, they, like, okay, like, like look at some of the guys that, pro, like, Pittsburgh brings up. Like, Teddy Bluger and Zach Aston Reese and Jake Gensel. Like, these guys, they only became relevant because... They were, what, third and fourth round draft picks? But they showed up on a team that had bona fide stars and a winning culture, and they became good because of it. They didn't get, like, they weren't, like, superstars in the juniors who were supposed to show up on the roster and save the day. No, it's because Pittsburgh has a winning culture. Washington has a winning culture. I can't even remember the last, like, super sexy guy that, Washington has brought up like they had Madison Bowie and they actually traded him for Nick Jensen it's because these are teams that realize that prospects and draft picks aren't only useful for what they'll do on your roster they're useful for what they'll bring to your roster like in terms of trades or transactions and I'm not saying that you should trade every single prospect you have obviously that's not the way to go but like Pittsburgh and Washington have had the same core for for a number of years. The Chicago Blackhawks have had the same two or three guys a number of years, and their draft picks just kind of came in and insulated and have been interchanged for the most part, uh, like over their times of on top of the league. But people think that Ron Hexel was good because he brought drafted guys who projected to be superstars. You can't expect prospects to become superstars. Basically, if you're a first-round pick and you became an everyday NHLer, even if it's a bottom six, a bottom uh, two defenseman or a bottom six forward, that's a success. Well, you hear that argument all the time with Scott Lawton. There's a group of people that hate Scott Lawton because he was a first-round pick and is only a bottom four guy, but fuck, he brings him more to the table than most people. He was the best flyer on the team last year. You know, I just... Going, you know, Boston's another team that has been able to integrate prospects well. Tampa Bay has been able to. It seems like everybody they bring up turns into gold. You know, Capitals, let's go through their draft picks. 2004, they had Ovechkin and Mike Green. 2005, I don't recognize any of those people. 2006, they had Backstrom and Varlamov. Oh, and Michael Neuwirth, look at that. 2007, they had Carl Alsner. That's it. 2008, 
uh, Brayden Holtby in the fourth round. That's it. 2009, they had uh, Mar- uh, Marcus Johansson, Orlov, and Cody Eakin, who are three NHLers, but nothing special. Uh, they had Evgeny Kuznetsov in 2010. 2011, they only had four picks in the last four rounds. None of them made the NHL. Uh, 2012, they had Forsberg, who, you know, we all know how that story goes. Uh, Tom Wilson was there. That's about it. Andre Burakovsky in 13. Verona in 14. Like, none of these guys are anything special in the last four years. Nobody's made it in their prospect pool. So, I just... it. I think fans just want to hoard players. They just want to hoard the prospects. And it happens every year. And it's going to happen whether this year or next year with Morgan Frost. You know, he's scoring five goals in juniors and he's tearing it up and then he's going to make the NHL and he's not going to be able to reproduce those numbers because nobody can in today's NHL. And everybody's going to build him up and then they're going to all be disappointed because he won't be able to be this genuine bonafide star that they expect. And then they're, oh, well, now it's going to be Cam York's turn to be the bonafide weight. They, they just want to draft these fan base. Again, that's I think it's the difference of a mindset is the fan base doesn't know what it is to win anymore. They don't know what it is to be competitive. Maybe fans haven't been fans as long as I have. I, my parents were Flyers fans. I started watching in the mid-90s. You know, I watched the Legion of Doom. I watched the Deuces Wild line. Like, I watched them make the playoffs successfully and make it deep in the playoffs for years. Maybe these fans don't know what that is. Maybe they only were fans since 2010 and they, you know, and most of that time they've sucked. Maybe they don't remember what it is. Maybe they just, maybe it's just a justification process to themselves that they, you know, oh, well, there's fucking Kevin Hayes, fella. He's the guy. Oh, Morgan Frost, he's the guy. Because everybody else sucks. They brought up some kids, and they make it. Like, Konechny is fine, and and Sanheim and Myers and Provorov, they're all great, but none of these guys are carrying the team themselves. There is no Austin Matthews. There's no Jack Eichel. There's no Connor McDavid that you're waiting for to come up and save the day. Build a team and let the kids come in and dominate that way like it has worked successfully with Washington, Pittsburgh, Boston, Tampa. Uh, I'm sure there's some Western Conference teams that have done it. Why is this so hard? Like, I don't know. I don't. I. I don't know. It's so frustrating to to start venting this kind of stuff because I seem to be one of the few people that understand that. Well, like, look at Boston. In 2015, they had the four, the 13, 14, and 15 picks. Okay, and 2015, obviously, we know the Connor McDavid draft. It's quickly becoming like the new 2003 draft. It's like star studded. Correct. Yes. And then look who they picked, Zaboro, DeBrusque, and Seneshin. Besides DeBrusque, Seneshin and Zaboro have done nothing in the NHL. I think they've only played, what, like one or two games each? They passed on Barzal, Connor, Shabbat, Besser, Konechny, Roslovic. You know, these are all premier guys. But you know what? They survived without them. They hit on one of them. Jake DeBrusque, and you could still argue that Barzal and Connor are better than DeBrusque. But you know what? They instill the culture, and they have teams that they don't have to depend on draft picks. Like, I saw something that, like, because the um, because the Blackhawks just traded uh, Yoki Hyrer there. Yeah. Like, the Chicago Blackhawks have traded a lot of their first-round picks over the past few years. And, okay, obviously the last two seasons they kind of dipped for a bit. Because of, uh, you know, just like it caught up to them, the contracts, and they haven't made the playoffs. But for the most part, they've been a very successful team, and I think they're back on track here. 
But let's look at the bat like before this season, all of their first round picks. Okay, so Henry Hokey Hyru traded. They didn't have a first-round pick in 2016. They didn't have a first-round pick in 2015. In 2014, they traded Nick Schmaltz. 2013, they traded Ryan Hartman. 2012, they traded Tuvo Teravainen. In 2011, they had Mark McNeil, who I don't even know who that is, and Phil Deneau. He was traded. 2010, Kevin Hayes. We know where Kevin Hayes is. 2009, Dylan Olson. 2008, Kyle Beach. You know, the last time a, a first-round pick made an impact for the Chicago Blackhawks, it was Patrick Kane in 2007. So you know what? Get, like, I know that first-round picks are good. I'm not saying that the players are bad, that they've had affinity, infinity first-round picks since Ron Hextall came in. But you don't need to depend on these guys. If you instill a good culture and you add some good pieces, like people crapped all over uh, Dale Talon when he brought in Marion Hosa and Brian Campbell to the to insulate the team, but look at what it, they did for those kind of guys. Going out and overpaying for a guy like Antoine Vermette, trading for a guy like Kimo Tiemann. Like these are pieces that, even though they're bold moves and maybe in a nutshell you overpay when you look at the the you know the bigger picture, but look at what it did for them. And we just ran through all the, those their first round picks during their big era. None of them really hit, and most of them have since been traded. So like, give me a break that the only way to be successful is to depend on draft picks. And and I'll even counter that argument with teams that have depended pretty much solely on draft picks: Edmonton, Buffalo, Arizona, teams that build strictly through the draft and just have a couple bums in their lineup other than that, they don't get anything done because these kids are just out there doing whatever it is they do. You need some leadership. You need some 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 fucking scaffold to your team. You got to build something up so that the kids can come in and succeed without having to carry the weight. Nolan Patrick came in and was thrown right into the second line center role. That was a horrible idea at the time and it hasn't worked out yet. They should have had a second-line center. Last summer, when they brought in Van Riemsdyk, everybody said, oh, man, this is the year things are going to change because they brought in Van Riemsdyk. Hextall's serious this year. And then what happened? They fucking fell off a cliff because their goaltending sucked, their defense sucked, and their depth down the middle sucked because James Van Riemsdyk didn't fix any problems themselves. Their penalty kill was awful because he wasn't there. I just... It shouldn't be that hard to properly address the team's needs. Rather than, again, these fan... I get, people want to be optimistic. I get it. We argued with somebody this morning about this. You can be optimistic all you want. That's fine. But I'm just telling you what's up. I'm just telling you what the downfalls of this team are. I can't look at this team and go and say with confidence that they're a playoff team. I just can't. And here we are. Frost and Ferry probably won't make the team this year. They do need a third line right wing, but I highly doubt that goes to either one of them. They should spend some time with the Phantoms and get their feet under them before they get thrown into the fire. And they go, oh, Daniel, Carter Hart's here, Daniel. That's fine! Does anybody know what happens to top goaltending prospects their second year? They typically don't live up to the hype. Marc-Andre Fleury took him years to recover after coming in hot. Carey Price took a little while to recoup. Jonathan Quick was slow after his first year. Like, you're relying on one 20-year-old kid to come in and save the day and base your whole argument off that, but it's just not... I don't get it. Like, you put $9.5 million in Niskanen abroad. You put $7.1 million in Hayes. Why not just bring in one defenseman, and you could have saved that money for a backup goaltender, or a legit backup goaltender? 
you could have been smarter with the money this year and made things better and addressed the needs better. I would be the happiest guy in the world if the Flyers made moves this year. You want me to be optimistic about the Flyers? Give me something to be optimistic about! God, like, you're reaching here for Kevin Hayes. I'm sure, I'm, like I said, I've said in the past, I like Kevin Hayes. As a player, he's fine. Is he the guy that I would bring in to rebuild the second-line center and hope that Nolan Patrick can develop on? No! Make it happen! I just, I don't know. Well, one thing that you brought up, which I liked, is in 2017, okay, when they got the second overall pick, do you remember how this that season started? You know, they brought in Robert Hay, Travis Sanheim, uh, Nolan Patrick, as we mentioned. You know, Konechny and Provorov were just only going to their sophomore years. Like, because they were projected to come up, Hextall, like, on the day they drafted Nolan Patrick, got rid of Braden Chen. He got rid of Nick Schultz and Michael Delzato, who, okay, they didn't, weren't exactly superstars, but they still were decent you know, veteran guys on this team. And they just he just threw the kids into the fire. Like, I remember the top four defense at the beginning of 2017-18 was Provorov, McDonald, Haig, and Gossespierre. Like, what the hell are you doing, man? Like, bring in, you know, like, maybe you should have kept, like, maybe not a Mark Strike, but go out and add, like, a veteran like that. Help insulate the kids. Keep Braden Shen to play on the second line. You know, like, keep some veterans around. Just don't throw these kids at the wolves. And I, again, I'll bring back to Holmgren. And this is going to be a bold statement, but I would argue he's the best general manager this team has ever seen. And I'm not counting, let's say, Bud Poyle, the original GM. I'm counting, like, more, like, since the 80s on in the modern era. Because, look, like, in 2007-2008, Richards and Carter were coming up. R.J. Umberger was showing up. But he didn't just give these kids, like all of the responsible responsibility right away. He kept Knubel and Simon Gagne. He added guys like Lupo, Hartnell, and Briere. Like, I remember just a subtle move he made when he brought in, like, Jim Dowd to be the fourth-line center. Or in 2010, when he brought in Blair Betts to be the fourth-line center. Just certain guys to help insulate these young guys to come in and not have to take on this burden. Like, when Giroux and Van Riemsdyk first broke into the NHL, they were third-line guys. Why? Because they had Briere there, they had Richards there, they had Gagne and Carter there to take on these big first-line center role, you know? And now it's like, and that's where I really don't see why people think that Holmgren was the devil and, and Hextall was God. Like, Holmgren knew how to ease kids in. He didn't rely on kids just because of what they did in the OHL. He just said, okay, well, they look like they're going to be good, but we're not going to throw them to the wolves. And Haxtell did the exact same. Like, he just, he didn't add. And do you remember Haxtell's first year in 1516 where they went on that crazy run to March in March and made the playoffs and they ultimately lost against the Capitals? Yeah. Like, okay, they lost against the Capitals, but I was so optimistic. And then he added Dale Weiss in the summer. Like, that summer he should have said, okay, these kids are moving quickly, but let's add. Let's not just continue to be stagnant. And then they took the step back the next year when they went on that 10-game losing streak or whatever it was. And it's just like, actually, no, that was the year they had a 10-game winning streak in December and then didn't make the playoffs. And it was ever since then where, like, they came off such a good impromptu year in 15 and 16 that he just refused to add. And that's why I'll come back to Holmgren. 
He didn't settle for garbage. He wanted to win. And yes, did he make mistakes along the way? Yeah, he did. Was Brizgalov a mistake? Yeah, but at least he tried to fix the goaltending. Was Le Cavalier a mistake? Yes, but he tried to update, upgrade the second-line center role. You know, was Mark Streit at the end of his career? Yeah, he was, but I thought Mark Streit was really good in his short time here. So it, it just really sickens me when I see people just crap all over Paul Holmgren and praise Ron Hextall. Hextall never knew when to pull the trigger to go. And there were at least two or three times I could think of where he could have done that. And, oh, Daniel, he brought in Van Riemsdyk. But, like... That was nothing, and it ended up not making much of a difference. Van Riemsdyk was nothing until, what, March when he came around? He had, like, ten goals in the last month and a half of the season, whatever it was. He dominated then, but he only had ten goals till the end of January to open the year. You, the guy came off a 36-goal season beforehand. I just... Holmgren tried. Like, I don't know how... I, I, I equivalated just to brainwashing that the Hextall people that just got brainwashed by what he said that, you know, you can't go yet. You got to have all these prospects and you can't go and you can't bring an old guy in and contracts and this and that. Like, I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't get how people can hate Paul Holmgren. Sure, he struck out from time to time. And let's talk summer 2013. Mark Streit, Vincent LeCavier, Ray Emery. He bought out Briere and Brzgalov uh, with the compliance buyouts for the new uh, CBA. And then he fired Peter Laviolette three days into the season, which is probably one of the bigger mistakes that he made. Uh, but, you know, LeCavier, there's a reason Tampa bought him out. Because he just wasn't what he was. I love Vincent LeCavier. He's probably one of my favorite players of all time. But Tampa bought him out for a reason, because he couldn't hang anymore. The game has passed him by. Mark Streit was fine, but he was in his late 30s. Ray Emery was fine, but, you know, he's not the top backup guy, rest his soul. You know, summer 2014, they brought in AMAC. They signed AMAC to six years, $30 million, and then a couple months later, he was uh, promoted to president. Paul Holmgren was. And that ended that. You know, it was just a freaking disaster in 13 and 14, and possibly in 12 when he lost Yager and Carl. But at least in 13 14, they made the playoffs and took the Rangers to seven games. <laughs> like, think about that. Yeah, they tried. It's just... I don't know. I, I, I just... It's such a culture of losing these days. The people are just... They're fine with mediocrity. They're fine with with moral victories and taking many steps forward. I've heard people say, Oh, well, if the Flyers make the playoffs this year, it's a success. If they... Maybe if they win around, it's success. Is that where we're at? Because that's been the narrative for years now. Is, man, if they make the playoffs, back in the Pittsburgh series two years ago when they got blown out of the water by Pittsburgh, people go, oh, it's a success. They made the playoffs. Is just making the playoffs a success? Shouldn't you, you know, try and make some noise? You went in there and got curb stomped by the Penguins in six games, embarrassed at home multiple times, and it's a success just because they made it? I, I just Try and win... Some games. How about don't sneak into the playoffs in the eighth seed? Try and get a top three in the Metro spot, which, quite frankly, I think is the only way they're making the playoffs this year anyway. Yeah. And it's it, it, it's too bad because, you know, it, it got to a point, and it really bothered me, that, like, the guy stepped down. He, he essentially retired yes, all, for all intents and purposes. Like, Sather did the same thing in New York. Senior advisor, okay, he shows up when they really want, like, a big – 
like personnel decision about for management. But like, and people are just like, oh, like, yeah, you know, like we saw like one guy said like, oh, this is just a PR move. So people stop like calling him out that he's actually in charge. And now he's going to be even more the puppet master. Like, oh my God. Like, are you kidding me? Like, are, like, I referenced one guy who we spoke off here that I absolutely torched on Twitter where he said that I know for a fact, this is a guy with 115 followers, he knows for a fact that Holmgren was upset for that Hextall took his place as GM and waited for Schneider to die to get him out. <laughs> okay, so oh, we do know that Schneider died two and a half years before Hextall got 10. So Holmgren was plotting this for two and a half years, or maybe he just saw after two and a half years the team had taken a step back and stepped forward. You know, and really, he was the evil puppet master the whole time because I really don't think we just ran through Paul Holmgren's track record. I really don't think he would have settled for the biggest free agent signing would have been James Van Riemsdyk. You know, he would have went hard for other guys. So don't give me this. Now he's even going to be more the evil puppet master. And like, it's like, what, like, could, do you not have any inkling of respect? Like, what do you think these guys are? The Flyers Illuminati? Like, my God, like he stepped in and fired Hextall because Hextall didn't want to do anything when another season was spiraling out of control. What's the problem with that? Like, the same people that are complaining that Hextall got fired are the same people that were complaining that Hextall survived as much as he did. And it's come out that one of the big issues that led to Hextall's firing, aside from the Carter Hart debate, was that he would refuse to fire Hextall. So, like, people don't understand that, like, if Hextall was still here, Hextall would have still been here. Like, I don't know what people don't get by this. They, they, they complained that the team wasn't doing good, but they didn't want anything to change, and Hextall refused to change anything. Like, it, it's so hypocritical, and the one guy who stepped in and made a change that the team needed is the guy that people, like, peg as the devil, and, and which is the same guy that gave the team arguably the best five-year run since the 1970s. And I just, it, I don't understand the hatred that is portrayed at Paul Holmgren. Like, did he make mistakes? Yes. And don't give me this whole, oh, you need to win a Stanley Cup to be considered a successful GM. Really, because Don Sweeney has never won a cup with Boston, and he just won GM of the year. Doug Wilson is considered the one of the best show managers in, in the NHL, and he's never won a cup with San Jose. Doug Armstrong has never exercised a buyout with St. Louis, but only won a cup this year. And I could tell you that even prior to this year, he was considered one of the best general managers in the NHL. Steve Eiserman was brought into Detroit to, to save the day and has built one of the best teams in Tampa Bay. So don't give me like, oh, homegrown never won the cup, so he, he was garbage. Bullshit. Like, he did everything right. He didn't, but the only fault that I'll put on Holmgren is that he built a team that didn't have a big enough window. That's the only slight I could put on him, and it crashed and burned fast. So they had a two, three-year window, and it didn't work, and it turned to garbage. But again, at least he took his shot. At least he tried. And I sure as hell want a guy who tries 
but made some mistakes along the way than a guy who just stayed stagnant and was good with the status quo, even when the status quo was nothing. For those of you that may not totally understand what Anthony's referencing there, there is a subset of people on Twitter that fully believe that Paul Holmgren is in charge of this team no matter what and has been in charge for years. That it's still Bobby Clark and Paul Holmgren running the show even though Ron Hextall was there. And uh, those people are fucking psychopaths, for lack of a better term. But uh, yeah, he built a team that wasn't built to last and and you know then he made the move in the richards and carter trades and and which brought in kind of the next era you know those trades were eventually (laughs) supposed to bring in a goaltender to help continue the stretch but what they ultimately did was was build kind of this tweener era that we had you know in simmons and shen and and voracek and such so there's that but uh, yeah it's just people are gonna hate on paul holmgren they always will because they can point his they can point to the faults Ah, well, that, you know, the the, the Richards and Carter trade. Well, they didn't do that there. And they traded Brayden Shen later, and they didn't win us a cup, and, and, and Briz contract. And, and Listen, he tried. And that's far more than you can say for Ron Hextall, because Ron Hextall didn't once try to make this team competitive. He was so worried about prospects. And now all the prospects are here. And this team still isn't that competitive. And Chuck Fletcher made moves. I'm not a big fan of the moves he made, but you know what? He's trying. And that's all I can ask for at this point. I don't think this team's going to be great this year. I think they're going to be better. I don't think they're going to be great. I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs or not, because I think the Eastern Conference is stacked. But uh, it's going to be something. Paul Holmgren was a pretty good GM until the last two years there. And you know what? If he was able to land Weber or Parise or Suter... Things may have been different. There may be no Andrew McDonald, mainly because they wouldn't have the cap space for it. (laughs) (laughs) There wouldn't be any Vincent LeCavalier, which is a shame because I love Vincent LeCavalier. But it's just, I don't know. Those moves, the the summer 2012 especially, you know, losing Carl and Yager hurt big time. You know, they were still reeling from Pronger's loss at that point. They lost JVR for Shen, which again, JVR wasn't, you know, anything super special at that point. But Shen didn't help. They didn't land Prize Suter Weber. They did? Who knows? You know? It's just, it's a different time. And now we're, Hextall's gone. Holmgren's gone. We have Fletcher and Dave Scott. And that does not help me sleep easy at night. <laughs> because uh, Dave Scott was essentially thrust into this position after Snyder died. And you got Chuck Fletcher, who's been a bit of a loose cannon, to say the least, thus far. But, listen, I'm going to give it time. Maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the year things finally change. After years and years of mediocre bullshit, maybe this is the year that things change. And look, a lot of people were clamoring for kind of like what a Toronto did. Where like enough with like the old, like the old, um, what is it? The old alumni running the team. Give like the reins to someone who has nothing to do with the organization. Like Brendan Shanahan and Mark Hunter, who's not there anymore, but Kyle Dupas. That's what the Flyers are doing. They gave it to a guy, Dave Scott, who's a Comcast guy with little to no sports background, and Chuck Fletcher, who we've mentioned has only been with the organization for seven months. Is it an ideal setup, in my opinion? Probably not. But you know what? It's a new direction. It's a new start. It's a completely clean slate. You have three coaches now who are brought in who have nothing to do with the Flyers. No more Ian LaPerriere, no more Craig Berube, no more Jack McElhardy. None of that. It's a completely 
new slate. So give it a chance. I, you know what, Dan? Like, I'm more optimistic than you, and we do these shows all the time, and you don't think that they're going to be too good this year? I think they will. But, again, you're being realistic, and I understand your point. After years of garbage, I totally get why. But maybe I just think that a lot of this had to do with the culture that Ron Hextall put in place. And I think just the moves that Fletcher made will, like, inspire the current core that's returning from last year to play better. But again, people, stop thinking that Fletcher's a puppet. Like, get over it. He's making moves. He's trying. And for all these people that want Hextall to come back, you know what? You better count your blessings because eventually you're going to realize that he would have just continued to do more harm than good. This team is at least trying to advance themselves. And like you said, although maybe that none of the moves were sexy ads and I would have probably could have done without them, on some level, but at least he did something. He did something. He wants to improve the team. And like you said, that's all you can ask for. I try and understand every fan base. I try and understand every opinion from the fan base. Every angle. I get the optimism. I do. Here's the Flyers are your favorite team. I get it. I'm not here to, to, to shit on that. Because the Flyers are my favorite team too. I wouldn't do this if I didn't like the Flyers. I would love him to be successful. I just don't see it. And maybe it is just years and years and years and years of believing and then getting shit on immediately. I bought into it last year. I thought, man, shit's going to change, and it didn't. And I'm just tired of getting my hopes up for nothing. You know, if they brought in somebody worth it this year, if Perrin was here right now, God, I'd be the happiest man in the world. If Subban was here, Truba, anybody else. Big addition, made worth it, that's fine. I believe that the Flyers are going to be better. I have never once said that they're not going to be better. But I don't know if this is the team that's going to make things happen. If this is the team that's going to push the needle. But I, I get it. You know, I, I, the, the fans have every reason to be negative. Because there's plenty of shit that's happened over the last six years to be negative over. But I get the optimism too. I just don't see it that way. I'm just trying to be realistic. Maybe I just don't want to set myself up to get you know disappointed again. Again! For the 20th year in a row. I don't know. I just... I'm going to listen. I would be the happiest man in the world if we sat down here in November and the Flyers started the season 10 and 0. They had a 10 point lead on second place in the Metro. It'd be great. I'd be so happy. But I just, I'm not prepared to say that's what's going to happen yet. And everybody has their own opinion. I get it. I ain't here to shit on you. So I'm here to shit on anybody. Even these people on Twitter like to unfollow me, unblock me, whatever it is, because I said something realistic that they don't want to hear more power to them and you know what just to close this thing out here i'm gonna make a bold statement and maybe it's because it was a time in my life where every single year the flies were competitive and every year you could make a case that they were a cup contender i would say that the paul holmgren is probably the best general manager this team has ever had and obviously it's not a big pool to choose from because like we said if we're just counting the modern era you have clark Fletcher, Hextall, and Holmgren. Fletcher has only been here for seven months, so it's not really fair to put him into that pool. Clark had a few good competitive teams, but again, he made a lot of moves that hurt the team as well. And Hextall, he did a whole lot of nothing. You know, four playoff game wins in, what, five seasons he was here? So you know what, Holmgren, every year, year in, year out, the team was competitive. And even his last season, where the team was considered as a disaster. 
they still finished third in the Metro and took the Rangers to seven games in a very competitive series. So you know what? For all these people that shit on Holmgren, you know, actually look at his track record. And in my opinion, at least in the modern era, he's the best GM this team has ever had. Chuck Fletcher hasn't been here long. Ron Hextall was a freaking disaster. Holmgren was there from 2006 to 2014. Clark was there from 94 to 2006 when they made it to the finals once in five division titles. Russ Farrell, uh, Farewell was there from uh, 1990 to 94. Those were the years when they missed the playoffs. Bobby Clark was there again from 84 to 90 when they had two Stanley Cup final appearances. Bob McCammon was there from 83 to 84 for only one year. Keith Allen was there from 69 to 83 where they won the Stanley Cup twice. And then Bud Poye, the first one from uh, 96 to 69. So it is uh, fairly easy to say. Maybe you can make an argument for Keith Allen. But, uh, you know, I think Holmgren is probably far and away the best one. He made the team competitive for a very long amount of time, for almost 10 years. Kind of fell off the head there the last year or two, but he made the moves. And he's not secretly running the organization anymore, people. He's not. Yeah, please get over that. He's gone. <laughs> now we have Chuck Fletcher. And all we can do is sit here and count our lucky stars. This is the year, and he's going to come in, and this is the year things change. But Holmgren's out of the picture. Scott Lawton's here for two more years. Still got uh, connecting Provorov news. Uh, I have no idea when the next episode of anything is at this point. We're kind of playing it by ear for a coast-to-coast return. Maybe next week if uh, there's more news, we can go over some of these more signings in depth. But uh, kind of play it by ear. Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at adamarco 25 or you can find my work at TFP. And you can find me at Dan the Flyer Fan. Find the site at Brotherly Puck. Listen to this show at Brother underscore pod at National Puck and at National Pod Net. Uh, summer series back this week as always top five on monday uh history of jersey number on wednesday and abbreviated history of series on friday the uh trade lineage series is on tuesday this week as well so that's it for us everybody thank you for listening goodbye and good night